Welcome to the first episode of Remember the First Time, a new podcast brought to you by us. Uh, the us are myself, Mark Rawson, my good friend, Paul Fawes. Hello. And, and good friend, Charlotte Pearson. Hi. How are we doing today? Smashing. Very good, thank you. It's a sunny day. The trees are singing, the birds are swaying. <laughs> <laughs> they are. They're singing, their, they're shaking their hips in honour to Jarvis. <laughs> In a, in a way that only Jarvis could do. What the birds or the trees are shaking their hips? Which do you think? Trees. Trees have hips. <laughs> Don't you think they're a bit, uh, a bit too straight and awkward <laughs> to have hips? <laughs> I do. Don't you think hips are the most awkward part of a body? No. <laughs> I think they are because they're like, yeah, they stabilise yeah, you. They no, keep you. Hips have literally got the most groove in them. Do you think? Yeah, not naturally. Know. You could don't get me wrong. You could put the groove into them, but it's not like a a free flowing leg. <laughs> it's not a free flow. Right. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> I argue this though. Jarvis Cocker's hips are one of the most free flowing out there. Yeah, but what I'm trying to say is, don't you think that he he puts that groove into them? He puts that free flow into them. He doesn't just naturally have a. So hips are quite. Awkward, is maybe, what I'm saying. Maybe your hips are awkward. That's very true. <laughs> That's true even when I'm trying for them not to be. Personally, I have very sensual hips <laughs> that sway and swagger and do all sorts of other things that begin with S. Okay. Slink. Okay. <laughs> I have slinky hips. Anyway, this is a great start to the first <laughs> podcast. People hearing about our hits, what we're actually here to do is to talk to you. Talk about the hits. <laughs> talk about the hits, indeed. Indeed. This is a podcast for us to reminisce about the, our 90s. Fav- about the 90s, but who knows where it might go. As time goes on, so will the podcast, we hope. We hope you'll stay with us. We hope you'll carry on listening. And this could This could be infinite. We could always just be 25 years behind ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here's us at 72. Well, remember them hits when we were 47? <laughs> Is that right? Is that the right maths? think so. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Pretty solid that's fine. So, right, what we're actually here to talk about is, um, on Remember the First Time, is Pulp's breakthrough album, His and Hers. Because this week, it's Good Friday 2019. Yesterday was 25 years since the release of Pulp's fourth studio album, His and Hers. Um, They'd been on the scene for a long time before that. I believe the band was formed very late 70s. 79. Yes. Um, But after marginal success, obviously persistence carried on with them. Um, But it wasn't until 1994 when they released His and Hers. And uh, as this week is 25 years since that time, we are celebrating that by recording this podcast about the album and about music um, at that time and uh, life at that time so we can reminisce about what a uh, great period of British music and what a great band Pulp were and how, um, how they shaped part of that era. I think the important thing is to obviously, because, you know, we were... Obviously, around at that time, we were reminiscing about a period in the mid nineties. I mean, Mark, how old were you in ninety four? Well, I've got to admit, being the young whippersnapper I am, I was just ten years old in nineteen ninety four. I was. I mean, I was 
nine years old. And Charlotte, how old were you? I was the lovely age of three. Three. So <laughs> this, is all... <laughs> this is perfectly uh, right that three people that were basically hardly aware of music <laughs> when this album came out should be talking about it and casting a critical eye over it. And, of course, everyone's going to get in touch and tell us that we don't know nothing. But, ha, 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 we know we don't know nothing. <laughs> we're not standing here saying that we lived through that moment as if we were the connoisseurs of music that we are these days, then. Um, but, well, I hold my hands up. Uh, I genuinely, 1994, I did not care about music. Ten years old. I don't think there were many ten-year-olds ten that were hugely into music at that age. I don't know, were there? I know, my memory of music at that time was being sat in the back of my mum and dad's Montego, the Rover Montego, and listening to Madness or Simply Red. That was <laughs> that was my music, or, or Queen, or of, of all things, like Motown. Like I didn't really listen to yeah. music. I wasn't allowed to, in the sense that I didn't control the radio. Yeah, same here. I didn't own a CD player. <laughs> I, mean, you were... I didn't really have much control over my parents' CD player. Yeah. I had uh, Phil Collins banging out. CD player? Yeah, CD <laughs> player, yeah. I know. Wow. Hi, Charlotte. You're three at this point, so... Yeah, so basically listening to Virgin Radio. Virgin, yeah. Yeah. And Simply Red, which is my mum's absolute favourite. And possibly bits of Take That, which, you know, nice. my first real obsession. If you can have an obsession being three. I mean, you can. That's not a toy. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember being three, so I can barely remember being oh, no. ten. Yeah. I, I, my my earliest memory of obsession around, well, my, my awareness of being obsessed at that age is Jurassic Park. But we're not here to talk about what we were obsessed about when we were kids. No, exactly. We're here to talk about... We're here to prove a point that we have no... Um, we have no, nothing that stands us up in this... Um... <laughs> we're full of ignorance and confidence and <laughs> yeah. we're not stopping. <laughs> we do not mind the fact that we, we don't have that background that gives us the, um, the know-how to uh, talk about this, but we still have a love of um, this album, we still have a love of the era, and damn it, we're going to reminisce about it, and we hope that you can reminisce about it too. <laughs> and we hope that you're going to tell us your memories of that time in your lives. And we're going to tell you how you can do that a little bit later on. So looking at the album then, his and hers, Charlotte. What obviously, it's three years old. That album isn't going to be uh, top of your agenda. But thinking about that album now, um, what does it mean to you now? What are your thoughts on it now, um, 25 years later? Well, I actually listened to the album for the first time earlier this week in full. Obviously, I've heard the, tr the singles, Do You Remember the First Time, Babies, great songs, which everyone, I think from Sheffield especially, is very well aware of. Um, but the album to me was kind of a bit of a surprise in the fact that I didn't think that it was going to be what it was. It was a lot more, it was a lot different, it was a lot quirkier than I thought it was going to be. But then again it is pulp and they're not exactly the most mainstream of bands. But I did enjoy it in places, there was places where I thought it could have been better, but 
you know, I can see why it pushed them into the mainstream. The singles in particular are, are very catchy and the, I don't know, they're just, I think they captured the period. They came along at the right time. And, and I, like, I agree with what you're saying around how it's not as mainstream as so. I think when everybody thinks of pulp, they think of common people. Yeah. They think of babies from this album. Do you remember the first time, which obviously are the bigger hits from the album? Yeah. But there are still many moments throughout the album that have that um, that arty sound that their earlier tracks had. Yeah. Uh, you listen to their earlier stuff and it's so arty. Uh, and I still think there's huge influence of that in this album. Yeah, definitely. A lot of the singles are dark. I mean, one of them, a lot of his, a lot of the lyrics are dark, and there's always this sense of doom, or at least a sense of dread, I think, in the lyrics. And moving forward to look at this is hardcore album and help the age it. There's a real sense of impending uh, um, fragility to it, and you can hear that in a lot of the earlier singles. When I'm listening to Acrylic Afternoons, it sounds desperate. It sounds full of dread, and that's like this kind of thread that runs through from the art the RT earlier stuff through to the uh, the big bangers as they are, they're all this sense of desperation and uh, pointlessness. Not not necessarily nihilism, but there's a sense of everyone's doing as best as they can, but at the end of the day, are they actually going to get any better? I often think when I'm listening to Jarvis's lyrics in songs, especially on this album, He's commenting on life at that time. He's commenting on life in the 90s and he's commenting on classes, obviously. Um, do you think he's celebrating the working class? But do you think he's almost moaning about the behaviours of the working class at times as well? Or I think it's, I think it's a bit of a combination of the both. I don't unfortunately have the quote in front of me. But he's talking about Sheffield and his obsession with steel. And he's talking about how it doesn't... There's this obsession with things uh, all to do with steel. Yet it's an industry that even during the late 80s, early 90s, when Pulp were really kind of making their mark, uh, in the 90s at least, it was an industry that was dead and gone, essentially. And yet people were still romanticising about it. And I think he gets frustrated with the working classes need to romanticise about themselves, possibly as a means of protecting themselves, because a lot of the working class mentality in Sheffield is protect your own with, before someone else can say anything bad about you. You know, you put yourself down before anyone else can put, you, put yourself down. And I think to a certain degree, Jarvis's lyrics are doing the very same thing. He's being self-aware to the point of it's almost ironic. He's he's from a working class background he's sending up working class ideology and normalcy and cliches before someone else can do it that's not from his background he's owning his own limitations without realizing that he's not limited by them mm -hmm. because of how good of a lyricist he is yeah but do you, th do you think he's celebrating them as well by doing that or do you think he's just saying you know what this is how it is this is how life is or do you think he's trying to say who cares that life is like this? I think it's both. Who cares that life is like this? But at the same time, celebrate what you've got. We're all, all three of us, if you don't mind me saying, from working class areas, from working class towns and from working class city. 
I've never been ashamed of my background, but at the same time, it frustrates the hell out of me. I think that um, a lot of the lyrics that Jarvis has written, and throughout a lot of the pulp songs, not just on this album, they have a sense of urgency and desperation, like you mentioned earlier, Alvin. You know, and I think that is, like you said, it's from the stuck in the boring working class towns and the, the people looking for a bit of a release. I mean, for example, on Joyriders, there's a, one of the lines is, can't think of anything but shit, sleep and drink. Like, there's nothing there that's saying that they're trying to get out of what they're what they've been born into and it's sort of like you say it could be celebrating it but it's also talking about how mundane everything is yeah. and yeah it's just it, that follows for common people though isn't it where yeah. you say it's what well, dance and drink and screw is it, is it dance and drink yeah. and screw yeah it's very similar it's, it's just which ironically is you wouldn't say lazy songwriting, but it's just a reiteration of the same point. Yeah. Time has passed, but it's still the same situation. But then if life is mundane, it's always going to be the same thing. It doesn't matter how many years have passed, I guess. Yeah, I think as well, do you think it's just, you know what, it, who cares that life is mundane? We can still make great art out of it yes. by creating these songs. Look at look at the um, the joy we can create out of a mundane existence almost. What do you think it means now, the album? Do you think it's aged well? I don't think it's particularly aged well. I think it's quite a dated sound throughout the entire album. I think, you know, the singles kind of stand up well. Um, but obviously the lyrics are very of their time. But I guess with the way that society's going at the minute, you could argue that it's a very similar sort of era that we're living through with the working class towns going through the same sort of things that they went through yeah. in the late 80s, early 90s. But in terms of a lot of the actual sound of the album, I do think it sounds very dated. It's quite that late 80s, early 90s sound. I don't think that it fits now. Like if you played it on the radio now and tried to pass it off as a single from now, it would sound very out of tune with what everybody else is putting out there. I, no, I, I disagree to a certain degree. I think that I still think that Happy Endings could have been a single. But I do think that it'd be... I don't think it could have been a single then, mm. but I do think it would work as a single now mm. because I think there's more opportunity for variety in the way that certain types of songs, the structures of songs, what you would consider a pop song could be accepted now. I think there's maybe more opportunity for what you would consider an album song, a track, uh, an album track to be an actual single. I'm not saying it would be a lead single, but I do think it could be. And I, I think... In terms of the sound, I agree. I don't think it has necessarily aged perfectly, but it's to a certain degree of its time, mm. and it's restricted by what the technology was then. I mean, it's it's, it's only 20, 25 years ago. It's we're not talking about you know flutes and and <laughs> and harps compared to <laughs> compared to synthesizers now. I mean, obviously they were working on synthesizers, albeit. Possessed by the devil. Um, but I think that she's a lady. If you listen to early Yeah, Yeah, Yeah stuff, which again still puts it as being sort of 10 years prior to now, 15 years prior to now. I was going to say it's only 10 years after yeah. this and hers. I do think that you can hear in the structure, the beat of She's a Lady, and again in the things, you can hear influence in Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's. Might take you 
little time But I'm gonna have to try Oh yeah, I'm gonna try And I know no one Can ever know Which way to head But Don't you remember That you once said That you liked happy endings Ladies, do you remember the first time? And lip gloss. Were they the right three singles? I'm going to say yes. I do think if you look at them against the rest of the album, I do think they're the right singles. If there was any other, I would say Pink Love. But I think that's probably me being prejudiced for my love for the track more than anything else. When you consider um, other songs and music at that time, I do think that they're the right singles from the album. But I know you disagree with me. I think you believe there's others that should have been included on that list. Tell me. I think I think She's a Lady should have been a single. I'm not saying you should have replaced some of the others, because I do agree those three were the three strongest tracks. They still are the three strongest tracks on the album. Mm -hmm. They are clearly designed, personally, to be singles. They've got big hooks. They've got catchy choruses. They're easy to shout along to, which, for the era, still today, is what you need in a good single. But I do think She's a Lady could have been a really good fourth single just to show a different ability of Pulp mm -hmm. and to show a different songwriting style. One thing that does amaze me about the, the singles is the fact that so on the American version of the album, as a hidden track at the end, you've got Razzmatazz. Yes. So obviously here in the UK, Razzmatazz is released as a standalone single. Now, don't get me wrong. I love a standalone single between albums. Absolutely love it. <laughs> but how that could have been written at that time and not included on the album even. <laughs> it's not on the UK version of the album. Or for me, that should be a single, if anything else, personally. But Razzmatazz is just incredible. I, I, don't, I don't disagree. I just, I, I think it's just, a, I, I don't think they felt it was the right, I think it was a different sound. I think it was a, an, e, an evolution. And at that point, it didn't match what his and hers was about. Yeah, his and hers is literally about the seediness and sexuality of human nature. I don't think Razzmatazz fits perfectly into that. You move towards... Well, even with those opening lyrics. The problem with your mother, Paul, is she's sleeping with your brother. How is that not seedy? <laughs> <laughs> I, I know, because that's it's more tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, yeah no, I, know, I, know, yeah. I know. Charlotte? Yeah, in terms of singles, I can see why they released those three tracks. But I personally, I don't really care for lip gloss as a song. I just... <laughs> you can't see this. This is a, an audio recording. You cannot see Paul and I disgusted at even inviting Charlotte onto this pod at the moment <laughs> from that comment. Seriously, that why? Why not? Why? 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 <laughs> why? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, for me, when I listen to it, I just I didn't, I didn't feel anything for it. It was just a kind of a mm, whatever song. It didn't kind of like spark the fire like something like do you remember the first time like babies but i can see why they released it yes it's got that catchy melody and it's got that whole big hook all that kind of thing but personally i don't really care for it so <laughs> yeah i 
completely wrong and everyone else might be like, what the hell? But that's just my opinion. I'm There's not... no right or wrong when it comes to this. <laughs> I'm, not saying, I'm not saying he's completely wrong. All I'm saying is that it's a stone-cold banger. <laughs> Fair enough. I it, agree. It bangs harder. Fine. Common people, Disco 2000, might be anthemic. It bangs harder than those two, though. Wow. Out of the whole of their repertoire, it bangs the biggest. Ooh, that is a, that is a bold yes. statement. <laughs> it's a stone-cold banger, and everyone just needs to get on the right track with me. I'm, I'm just in love with that solo. Yeah, <laughs> and that's where incredible, it yeah. uh, an incredible solo in that song. Um, it, it's got an attitude to it, which I think some of the other tracks lack, and that's what I like about it. Okay, so I am glad we can uh, agree to disagree there before we move on. Right, coming up now, we've got an interview. Paul, tell us about who you went out to have a chat with. Um, so this is Rich Hull. He is a designer based in Sheffield, who also. Uh, worked at the Lead Mill in 94-95 and it's a conversation that I had with him at the Rutland Arms which is a fantastic pub just around the corner from uh, from the Lead Mill. A uh, conversation that we had earlier this week talking about uh, the Sheffield music scene and about how uh, pulp and Britpop as well as Sheffield in general influenced each other and how it allowed those scenes within uh, within Sheffield, that's the dance, the metal, the indie, to start to get to know each other a bit better. Um, and also we discussed, generally, music. At what point did the tables, or at least the waiting, start to pivot from grunge and punk to something that you would be able to identify as being Britpop? At what point did you suddenly go, well, actually, there's less American acts and there's more British acts, and there's a particular sound coming through that you seen coming towards the lead mill more often on tour. Yeah, I think I think so at the time, you know, I'm not sure that like, I'm sure they do it now, but there's a there's a lot of up and coming bands that were sort of championed by by the NME and Melody Maker at the time. Um, you know, you know, sort of bands like you know like Blue Tones, uh, Supergrass, Gene, uh, Menswear, that kind of stuff, and they were I guess they were sort of like just coming out like end of 94, early 95. Mm. So they were sort of touring and sort of, sort of like promoting themselves. But at the same time, there's bands like Jesus Lizard um, and Weezer, so Weezer um, played there, that was a really good gig. So there was, there was still like bands that were influenced by the grunge scene and that they were part of the grunge scene actually playing there. So it was a weird kind of mix of the two, really. Mm. Um, and I guess in 94, 95, those bands were still kind of, again, that kind of crossfade between the two genres I guess um, but I suppose I suppose the r- I suppose the real big kind of crossover would have been that summer of 95 when it was the whole like Oasis and Blur um, you know about yeah, one. I, sure. I guess that was when it really kind of peaked it erupted I yeah definitely, yeah. yeah and I remember going to to, to like one day festival in, in Leeds uh, at Leeds Roundy sorry Leeds Roundy Park and that was like Again, like all the Britpop bands at the time and stuff, there's hardly mm. any sort of other bands that played there. So that was like, and uh, there was Pulp, like, had, you know, kind of headlining that as well. And that was the first time that I'd seen Pulp. And, um, yeah, because they've not done many gigs around Sheffield during the His and Hers release, which, which kind of surprised me. Like, they, 
the, they last played the lead metal at least in 93 a mm. year before his and hers came out i mean it's a hell of oh, a right. lineup there's yeah long pigs elastica and echo belly supporting oh, right, them right. but you would have thought or oh, maybe they were just too big for the lead metal at that point yeah but, maybe yeah or i guess they might have been writing his uh different class i guess maybe I don't may know. well be moving um, like, yeah but yeah it was yeah it's a weird time i guess because I mean, I remember. I mean, my my boss at the lead mill, like my my boss supervisor, he was really tight with uh, with the whole like pork crew, and he went on to be the landlord at the Washington for quite a while. And, oh. Like he went on well, to, like when he sort of took over the lease, took it over with Nick Banks, the drummer from Pulp, I think. Really? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, for what for a while, yeah. Um. So he used to sort of, you know, we you know kind of catch a taxi home like whatever three, four in the morning and he used to sort of tell me about tales of, you know, sort of going for pints of Jarvis and all that sort of stuff, you know, and it was like, it was really cool just sort of, again, sort of, that kind of going back to sort of realising that they are normal people and they are sort of these kind of like shiny elemental mm. rock star sort of thing, they are sort of like quite normal people. It's, it's a funny thing, Sheffield, I think, that everyone's got a tale about meeting Jarvis Cocker or meeting mm. Richard Hawley when he was part of Pulp and yeah. these kind of general rules of our oh, I've bumped into X, I've walked past Y. And it's it goes the same with Arctic Monkeys nowadays. Yeah. There's there's gigs where you've bumped into them or someone says, Oh right, there you know, my, my nan used to babysit for them, that sort of thing. And yeah, yeah. I don't know about yourself, but in that especially when Arctic Monkeys came through, that gave Sheffield a resurgence of pride in itself. But yeah. for Pulp, when they moved from underground to uh, something within kind of pop culture mm. with his and hers and babies and do you remember the first time yeah did that mean there was more people coming to sheffield coming to the lead mill did you see a change in the way that you know youth culture and uh people within the music scene uh felt about the city um i guess yeah i think well yeah the big eight the big indie night on a on a Saturday night. I guess you know. I think it's all the big indie night on a Saturday night there. Lebanon. That was always really quiet on a Saturday night. I think. Really. Unless there's unless there's a really big band on, the club nights could be really empty, especially in the summer because all the students have gone home. Yeah, true. And um, I remember going out and just think, oh man, you know, you know, it's got to be better than this. But then I guess Britpop hit, and I think I think it exposed a lot of people to, um, you know, to bands like Pulp and stuff. Even though Pulp had been around since. Like, Seventy nine, I think. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, like so, they, they first played the Lead Mill in nineteen eighty. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was it was a tiny like gig. Yeah, it was the Boutique of Steel Festival. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, that's flowery steel flower for you yeah, there. Yeah. Nineteen eighty though, yeah. and then it takes thirteen, fourteen years until yeah, mad, there's yeah. any kind of wider recognition. But you say yeah. so, in the summer, and unless there was a big gig on the Lead Mill on a Saturday night, was when it should have been packed was was yeah. quiet. Well, I wouldn't say quite as in like it was empty. It just wasn't, it wasn't really buzzing, do you know what mm. I mean? And then I guess, yeah, I guess maybe like, mm, perhaps like the, you know, the the onslaught of bands like, you know, Oasis and that brought a more mainstream customer, you know, customer to it. And I guess mm. more, more kind of people who weren't really kind of diehard indie kids. Cause you know, I don't know about, you know, like, like now, but it seems that every, like everyone's into, you know, a bit of everything, aren't they? Everyone mm. likes a bit of dance music, everyone likes indie music, a bit of this, a bit of that. But like, back in the 90s, you were either into indie music, metal, 
or dance, or you were playing with all those people who just didn't really get Which is interesting in Sheffield, because there was three very defined genres that were yeah. well well suited and well supplied in, in yeah. the city, <laughs> with Gatecrasher, with the lead mill, oh. and then you've got the metalheads with, sort of, under the Casbar, and, you know, obviously the history of Iron Maiden coming from Sheffield, and Saxon coming from Sheffield yeah, as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Oh, definitely, <laughs> yeah. of course. Do you think Britpop, in a sense, managed to... Not not necessarily metal, but do you think it was able to bring some of the dance kids back towards indie and take some of the indie kids towards dance? I think that was maybe a bit later. I think um, I think I think there's like definitely the Chemical Brothers helped. Mm. Um, Chemical Brothers and the Prodigy as well. Um, Chemical Brothers. I mean, the first album I heard when I was at, I was at uni in Derby. That was '96. I think that's when Exit Plan first came out, and that was with like. Tim Booth from the Charlotte. Yeah, yeah. And Beth Orton. And Beth Orton, yeah. yeah. So that kind of, that kind of like crossed the boundaries between indie and, and dance music. And because they weren't, they weren't sort of cheesy kind of housey kind of, you know, Friday Night Down at Rams. Yeah. It was sort it of kind of like, legitimised it, I suppose. Yeah. For those people that felt that indie music is real music and dance music is this throwaway. artificial, yeah, throwaway kind of thing. It. it yeah. So I agree with you absolutely. It, not that it needed legitimising, but yeah. for those people that would only listen to it if it had, you know, X person performing on it. Yeah. It certainly did that, and you know, setting sun as well with its uh, with its uh, references to the Beatles as well, kind yeah. of again yeah. shows that it's all connected. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think I think as well. I think like with uh, with the Prodigy as well, they. They managed to do a, like, a, like a three-step crossover with, from obviously from like the kind of like the like the sound system like kind of uh, illegal racing mm. to um, you know through to metal with you know using a lot of like kind of fresh metal guitars and so, mm. especially in like Fat the Land and obviously going via punk with the kind of yeah. anarchic side of it as well yeah definitely yeah. yeah so that appealed to kind of like the indie crowd people like you know sort of like kind of pogoing pogoing around yeah. you know like you know. Um, level, you know, Saturday night and stuff. So that kind of like crossed like three different sort of genres, I guess. I think you know, we're really good at that. So that kind of, and I think that led on to the, I guess, trip hop and that sort of side of stuff. So I guess like DJ Shadow and Portishead and stuff, that was like late, I guess that was late 90s, I guess. So I guess people maturing or getting out of Britpop, Again, seeing these bands like you know Chemicals and Prodigy and stuff, and and probably people like uh, you know uh, people like uh, Beastie Boys as well. Like, sure. Especially with um, what's the album called? Ill Communication. The one after that with um, Intergalactic. Oh, I've got the Five Boroughs. Um, oh, the one where it's got the space station in the sleeves. Oh, oh God. Now? Hello Nasty. Yes, Hello yeah. Nasty. We got that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but they're all really good albums. Yeah. Obviously, like you know, like, like Ill Communication has uh, Subassage, which is obviously a big deal. Yeah, exactly. Film, you know, and stuff. But um, so that kind of yeah, again, crossing over with hip hop and 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 you know, you know, some of their other stuffs quite sort of like chilled out and kind of like instrumental as well. So that kind of like leads on to sort of trip hop and mm. all that kind of stuff. Do you think there's a legacy from? Pulp's high point in 94-95 that still is present in Sheffield? Um, probably, yeah. I think... I went to a... 
going to a chat with um, with Magic Magic and uh, John McClure, and they were saying about um, you know sh- you know Sheffield's kind of history of you know, music and all the rest of it. And there seems to be a really good DIY spirit in Sheffield, mm. and I guess that's across the board. You know, like you know uh, when you go into town, it's it's not great. You know, but everything around it. You know, you go out to like. Um, you know, go out to like kind of like you know, like Hellam Island and Deep Sand, and that's really buzzing at the moment. And actually, um, like Abdel Road as well, where there's like you know you know Broadfield, but there's nothing like you know, like Picture House. There's lots yeah, of small absolutely. bars kind of popping up, and you know little venues and stuff. And they, you know, um, Picture House do a lot of gigs as well. Like yeah, it's yeah. great. So it's, it's yeah. a case, I think, of if no one's going to do it for us, Absolutely. we'll do it for ourselves. Yeah, definitely. There's yeah. a reason why we're called the People's Republic of South yeah, Yorkshire. Yeah, yeah. But I guess, yeah, yeah, with yeah with Tramlines as well, that's a really big, yeah, huge success. I mean, you go out on Tramlines weekend and everywhere is absolutely buzzing. People come from Leeds, Manchester, Nottingham, so to, you know, come and see it. It's, it's a great, yeah, it's a great thing for Sheffield. And I love that kind of, again, that kind of, DIY spirit of it all, you know, like every pub has a band on. Yeah. It's ten bands on, do you know what I mean? I think with Paul, I think that that kind of, although they got really big, I guess, you know, like you say, like mid to late nineties, they still had that that kind of dogged determination of, of, of you know carrying on, even though the Jarvis had been in been London for God knows how many years doing this stuff, but you know carrying on, doing their art, and and just kind of plugging away, and I think that's. Yeah. I think that's a real good thing about Sheffield. Great interview there with Rich. So obviously you're talking around um, the music scene in uh, the mid-90s in Sheffield. Rich actually having lived through that scene and giving his insights on it. But obviously at that time, 1994, this is 16 years after Pulp had formed. How hard do you think it must have been for for a band to have, you know what, given their all to creating the music they were creating for so long, but not having the breakthrough that they had um, then for such a long period of time. I could not do that. I could not, I don't think I could have, well, this is why I'm not a musician in that <laughs> sense. I, I would not have been able to persist like that. Um, how, how do you think they did that? Honestly, I don't know. I think... They must have had some real belief in what they were doing. They must have really, really wanted to do it. And... I think they have, like you say, a lot of belief. But I think they also have a lot of understanding and patience with each other. To be frank, there's a need to get on and earn a wage. You know, if, if, if it's not coming to them immediately, which a lot of bands don't immediately get fame, they just have to keep trudging through. Well, then it becomes the side project and they continue working. And it feels like that's what they were doing, which is part of the reason why they have such a fantastic insight into the trials and issues and highs and lows of working class life because they were in that life. They grew up in it because they're from that class and they were working. <laughs> you know, they were having to work. The true meaning. <laughs> They weren't method. <laughs> <laughs> I just think they didn't, maybe they didn't even want the fame. Maybe they were just trying to tell the story. And that's 
why they kept going. Like, why else would you keep going? Like, a writer keeps going for such a long time and finally gets that breakthrough novel because they actually want to do it. It's the same kind of thing. I think they just wanted to tell a story, not necessarily become, like, the next big thing, like an Oasis or a Blur. They just wanted to do it. Yeah, I agree. I think you raise a really good point there. Um, Oasis, rock and roll star, is literally about, for that moment, he's forgetting his working class limitations and he's allowing himself to fantasise. It's escapism for the Gallaghers. It's escapism for um, that band across the Pennines in Sheffield. It's not about escapism. It's almost a documentation of it. It's, mm. There's a, as a reviewer, and I cannot remember his name, um, who refers to the lyrics by In His and Hers as Alan Bennett meets Roxy Music, this glamorization of the working class. And I think it's a great analogy. I think it's I think it's on the money. And I think you're right, it's they're doing it because they want to do it, but they aren't doing it because they expect anything from it. Why do you do anything if you enjoy doing it? It's because you enjoy doing it. You never see people necessarily going out of the way. You don't always see people going out of the way to do stuff just for fame and fortune. They're doing it because they love their art and they all clearly love their art and that's why they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And it, it, uh, it obviously took off at this point. I mean, it didn't um, get to the same scale as uh, the next album, Different Class, might have done, um, but it was still a huge... Um, hit for the band compared to what had happened um, previously. I mean, it was uh, obviously nominated for that year's Mercury Music Prize. And uh, my favourite fact here is that apparently it missed out on the prize by just one vote. Who did it miss out to? Who did it miss out to indeed? It missed out to M People's Elegant Slumming. What's wrong with that? I'm not commenting because I've got to hold my hands up. That is not an album that I am aware of in its entirety it might be an absolute belter i can appreciate a bit of mp but <laughs> wrong, i can but further than their singles i am not aware of them at all that it's not a band that i uh, have uh, taken the time to uncover myself as then people say you've just got to keep moving on up nothing can stop me no, well, you're right. It it didn't send them stratospheric like different class did, but what's wrong with that? It, nothing. It was, Absolutely nothing. It was uh, it reached number nine in the charts, um, and it went gold. It went gold in under a year. Um, I think by February of '95, it had sold over half a million uh, copies. I'd like that, personally. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say, that is nothing to turn your nose up at all. I'm sure that was a cause for celebration um, for the band at the time. Should it have done better? It's hard to say. It, it, it's a bit of a moot point. There's no point saying it should have done better. It did as well as it did do. As we've already touched upon, it's not a perfect album. It's, in retrospect, slightly dated. It's lyrically clever and engaging, not necessarily accessible. Do you not think, I I disagree with you, I think it is accessible because of its lyrics, because it's telling tales um, of a, a like we said before, stories of everyday life that everybody can relate to. So I, I disagree there in saying that it's not accessible. I think it's almost not too accessible, but I just think it's, 
it's incredibly accessible. I think it's um, a celebration of um, everyday life. Personally, I think it's accessible, but it's too close to the bone. It's too it's too accurate, and people don't like to shine a light on themselves to hold a mirror up to themselves. And I think certain people might misinterpret his lyrics as being a as being patronising to the working classes, rather than being matter of fact this is this is what life is like for people of this era of this income of this lifestyle of this class and i think for certain people they don't want to be reminded of their limitations that's the reason why oasis has all that network because oasis are singing about let's just have a good time let's just be rock stars yeah pulp aren't doing that Pulp are saying, this is us, and we're you. And yeah, exactly, and that's, personally, that's what I love about them. Mm. The yeah. fact that they are doing that, they're just holding their hands up and saying, this is us. They've said it already for the last 16 years. Have many people listened? Not as many as people as they like, but they haven't cared. As we were saying before, they've kept up and going. They said, we don't care if we're not a mainstream success. We're still going to release the music we're releasing. The hit on his and hers which explodes and fantastic they've done it they've got there but going into different class then they don't change and that's what i love about them they don't go you might argue following different class when you're going into this is hardcore yes that sound changes somewhat but for the time being around this era they they were like this is our sound and we're not going to change so that people like us i think the perspective changes I think what they're talking about stays the same, but their perspective changes in different classes. And I don't want to go into it too much because that's not the album that we're looking at. But like I've said here, it becomes, I think, more self-aware. It becomes a bit more tongue-in-cheek. It becomes a little bit more how's your father. It's not it's not as camp as, say, you know, carry-on film, but there's that campness in it. And it's high camp. And high camp is always self-aware. And I think it starts, and I think there's some high camp in this album, in his mm, and hers. Mm, I do. And you can see it becoming more prevalent in Razzmatazz. Yes. And then you get to Common People, and you get to Disco 2000. And it's high camp, it's incredibly tongue-in-cheek, and it's a bit nudge-nudge-wink-wink. And I think that's why those have become the anthemic songs, because it's not poking fun or it's not talking down or trying to make people feel uncomfortable un, sorry, uncomfortable about their situation, about their class. It's saying, yeah, you're working class, I'm working class. Also, let's have a good time. I think that's why those songs are more iconic than the songs off of this album. Fair point. So... How was it received in the press then? If you're looking at some of the reviews at the time, Enemy and Q, both giving it four out of five. Do you think that's fair? I think that's bang on, to be fair. Yeah, I said, yeah, three, four. It's not bad. I, it's, I definitely don't think it's a five out of five album, but it's a solid album. It's it delivers. It's got some decent singles on it. And, yeah, I just think... It's all right. It's not a brilliant album of the time, 
<laughs> again, again, the, the audio does not show the faces being pulled from myself. It's all right. <laughs> I, I agree more with Charlotte than I agree with you. It's not a perfect album. I don't think it's perfect, but I think it's great. I happily accept that. I think... Yeah, I think all stars, 8 out of 10, whatever you want to make that the equivalent of. I think that's right. I don't think it's as iconic. I don't think it's a complete iconic package. I think the artwork is almost there. I think the singles are there. I don't think all the album tracks are as iconic. You go to certain albums, you go, oh my God, this... That should have been single, that should have been single. All of these could have been singles. I don't think that's necessarily the case. But I agree with Charlotte. I think it's four out of five, eight out of ten, however mm. you want to refer to it as. But I mean, it's a terrible album. Anyone that gives, says it's a terrible album. Rolling Stone. Yeah. Two, point, two and a half out of five. Sorry, I want, I want to name and change Rolling Stone there. Two and a half out of five. What do they now? <laughs> <laughs> that is harsh. Yeah. They don't know what I'm talking about. And I stick with that. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Coming up next then, we are going to talk about our favourite tracks on the album. And we're also going to say, have a look at what people are saying about it 25 years later as we celebrate 25 years of his and hers. You got it right first time I realize that you'll never leave her And every now and then and even You could get it right first time Okay, welcome back. So we're talking about his and hers. What's your favourite track on the album, guys? Charlotte, I'm going to ask you first. My favourite track was A Pillow Afternoons. Uh, not going to go into too much detail about why, apart from the fact that to me it kind of reminded me of Love Songs by The Cure. The melody in it is very similar, and The Cure are one of my favourite bands, so for that reason, I kind of love it. <laughs> was it the was it the violin? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Agree. Yeah. Hard agree. <laughs> yeah, hard agree. Um, Lip It's my favourite. It's my favourite pop song. And my second favourite Paul song, which is controversial, because a lot of people think it's when they were kind of going off the boil. Come on, tell me. Sunrise. Okay. I like Sunrise. This is hardcore, isn't it, Sunrise? No, it's past hard. It's there. Is it on Hell Agent? Yeah. Oh, I'm getting confused. Fair. Yeah. Wow, I wasn't expecting you to say that. Yeah. But, but sticking with his and hers, you're going gloss. lip gloss. I like lip gloss. I like, like you mentioned, it's got a... Banging guitar, I just think it grooves. And to go back to my hips at the start, they don't lie when this song's on. <laughs> and my group and the grooves in my heart. <laughs> you, what's, what's your favourite single? Pink Love. Why? I just love it. I just think it's a great song. I think it um, epitomises the whole album. It's almost, um, it's a bit naughty. Um, it's It's got a sing-along part to it. Um, it's got a good groove. I just really love this, the song. Um, I don't think it could have been a single. Yeah. Um, I think, like I said before, I think they got the singles absolutely right. 
But as a track, I uh, I just love its feel. If we were looking at the singles, I just love Baby's that intro. There's nothing better than that Baby's intro. Yeah, it's so good. But yeah, for me, best track on the album is Pink Glove. But what have other people been saying? Um, obviously, everybody loves an on this day on the socials. <laughs> nothing gets shared more than an on this day. What were people saying uh, yesterday when? Um, when people were celebrating the fact that it was 25 years since this album was released. So yeah, just looking at some of the uh, tweets in reply to a sick music tweet talking about the fact that it was 25 years since the album was released. At Pulp Person said that Pink Glove should have been single. What a top bop that is. Oof! Should have been a single. Yeah. <laughs> Who would have thought that Pulp Person would reply to that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Especially because they're actually more obsessed about the repurposing of waste paper. I'm surprised they had time to get on Twitter yesterday. I'm surprised they weren't in a cupboard just listening to that album. I'm saying that even because I wish I was doing the same. I'm not taking them down for that. We don't know they can't multitask. I mean, I'm multitasking right now. Yeah. Yeah. Tim Duckworth 2 said that Lip Gloss has to be one of the most underrated tracks ever. It's an absolute gem. The second of the Duckworth. <laughs> after Jack? <laughs> no, after, after Tim Duckworth the first. Okay. After Tim Duckworth the second. Oh, I'm just getting bringing out the Corrie boy in me. Jack Duckworth. <laughs> yeah, like we've gone off topic. Here. Okay, maybe. Just a little bit. <laughs> That's my fault. <laughs> Sorry, what did Tim Duckworth 2 say? Yeah, so at Tim Duckworth 2 said that Lip Gloss has to be one of the most underrated tracks ever. It's an absolute gem. I'll agree, Tim Duckworth the second. Mm, I have to disagree on that one, but yeah. Me and Tim Duckworth would disagree. Maybe not the first Tim Duckworth. Me and Tim Duckworth the second would disagree with you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> And finally, at Time Force Cop said that this album is probably the finest pop album ever. And to be fair, he's a Time Force Cop, so he has gone back and forth through time. So <laughs> he's got an informed opinion on that. Yeah. I disagree with him, but fair enough, Time Force Cops are the law in the Time Force, so I'm not disagreeing with him any more than that. Okay. So uh, <laughs> that's what other people think uh, without us asking them. Um, what uh, they feel towards the album. But tell me, Paul, how can people get in touch um, if they want to to um, to give us their views on his and hers, on the era, or on what we should be talking about in coming episodes? So, uh, they can't. No, no, that's <laughs> a lie. No, they can. Um, they can either email us at you at rememberthefirsttime.com That's you at remember the first time.com or they can tweet us at uh, at rtf time that's at rtf time or they can follow us on the instagrams that's right we're multi-channel um and you can follow us on instagram at rtf time as well fantastic so do get in touch and tell us uh, your thoughts on the show and uh... unless the bad don't no we all want the good stuff <laughs> well welcome the bad too i'll take it i'll take it i bet you'll take it yeah and then i'll go and find them and just argue with them on twitter yeah <laughs> i'll so troll you, them you've been worn <laughs> 
I've got a lot of spare time on my hands. I really don't. I really don't. Um, but yeah, do uh, do get in touch. Tell us what you think. Tell us what you think about the album. Tell us why you love the album, and tell us what you want to feature in the future. But before we go, we have one more thing to do. We have a quiz. So every episode we are going to bring you a quiz. We still haven't uh, decided on a format, so uh, bear with us for now. We still haven't decided who's going to host it. I think we might we might share that hosting uh, duty of the quiz. Do we have but, a quiz name? Um, um, no. I'm trying to think of a quiz pun for his and hers. Quiz and hers! <laughs> quiz and hers! <laughs> quiz and hers! <laughs> yes! This is the quiz and hers quiz. <laughs> I uh, I can't believe I didn't think of that before. This you, very second. Do you quiz member the first? <laughs> quiz and hers is quiz way better. <laughs> so welcome to the quiz and hers quiz, ladies and gentlemen. So now short quiz. We've got three questions for you. It is going to require you writing something down because uh, it's good for an audio feature. Definitely good for an audio feature. And um, what I'll do is I'll go through three questions. They're all lyric questions. We've got pens. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read out part of a song from His and Hers and you need to tell me what the next lyrics are. I'll tell you how many words. There's never that many. And yeah, write it down and then at the end we'll find out uh, who's got it right and who's won. (laughs) Um, If we have a tiebreaker, I will have to think of my feet and uh, think of one. So let's get ready. Here's your first question. We are only talking about songs from His and Hers. So, Joyriders, the lyrics. We can't help it, we're so thick we can't think. Can't think of anything but... What are the next four words? We can't help it, we're so thick we can't think. Can't think of anything but... Okay, that is the first question. Moving on to question number two. We just need a one word answer here. Nice and easy one. She, it's from Babies. She came home around four and she was with some kid called... What was the kid called that she was with? Oh! <laughs> I think this is easy, but oh. I've got the answer in front of me. I've actually got multiple choice in front of me because I definitely haven't stolen this from another quiz. Um, <laughs> but it's far too easy with the multiple choice answers, so I'm asking you straight out. Right. Well, well, well I'm thinking... Paul, this is an audio feature. We can't have All right, so I'll give you I'm gonna read it out one more time. In babies, she came home around four and she was with some kid called dot dot dot. That's a weird name. That is a weird name. Right, right. moving on. Third and final question. Morse code. <laughs> Third and final question. Do you remember the first time? No. The lyrics. Do you remember the first time? What are the next six words in that lyric? Do you remember the first time? 
Ooh, you look so excited to be writing that down, Paul. I think you've got the oh, third right. one. I think you've got one of them. Bring it, Charlotte. You're only going to win by two questions. <laughs> two out of three. Yeah. <laughs> Charlotte will listen to this album in full for the first time this week. She's got a good memory. And I have happens. old and decrepit. Okay, then, right, we're going back. Joyriders. The lyric was, We can't help it. We're so thick we can't think. Can't think of anything but... Shit, fruit and drink. Paul? Screwing, smoking, jam sandwiches. <laughs> or did you did you really write that? Yes, I couldn't remember the words. <laughs> That's obviously one to Charlotte. Yeah. I dispute this. <laughs> <laughs> there is no disputing going on. Right, babies. I am going to love what you've written down here, Paul, because I could see you struggling so much. She came home round four and she was with some kid called... Who's mm-hmm. going first? Peter? George? <laughs> I would love for it to be either of them. She was with some kid called David. Oh, why can't I remember this thing? <laughs> okay. In fact, I've got a great tiebreaker if we're tying, so I'm not going to mention the next okay. bit. Um, right then. So we are on one Charlotte, zero to Paul. So could all, come down, could all come down to this last question. Paul, you need this to I'm, stay in it. I know. I think you've got it from how excited you were, but... This is stressful. The lyric. Do you remember... I'm so disappointed. I'm so disappointed you've not got any right yet, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) I thought this was so easy. Anyway, do you remember the first time? Yes. Stop it. Do you remember the first time? I can't remember a worse time. Charlotte. Uh, I had it was something the worst time. I oh, we've got a tiebreaker! Oh my God. (laughs) We've not even planned this. This isn't right. This is like University Challenge. We haven't, but I've just thought of one, and this could either be brilliant. This could make or break this podcast on the first episode, because this is going to be fantastic. (laughs) Right, um, this quiz was taken from a Guardian quiz that was celebrating uh, six years ago. Oh, it was celebrating Jarvis turning 50, so that's why they were doing this, celebrating his lyrics, right? Those three questions were some of some others. I'm not going to go on to another question. I'm going to keep it on his and hers, so... When we were talking about babies, she came home round four and she was with some kid called. The answer was David, right? That was one of four possible options. First person to give me one of the other options wins. It's a knockout. You say one, Paul. Then you say one, Charlotte. (laughs) Andrew. Right. Neither of you are right. We go again. (laughs) She came home round four and she was with some kid called. Michael. Benjamin. Neither of you were right. Oh my god! <laughs> she came home around four, and she was with some kid called Gary. Simon. Yes! yes! Charlotte, come on! Hey! Charlotte wins. <laughs> I can't remember a worse time. <laughs> oh, fine. Well done. Thanks. I don't know what you won, but I'm going to find you a prize out. In fact, I'll bring you a prize. When we record the next part, you're going to have a part oh of the prize God. next time. Well done. Well done, Charlotte. Well done. That was fantastic. Thanks. That was oh. fantastic. I actually got so excited then. So, right. Talking, before we get on to the ending note, we've got a few uh, notices um, to bring to you. So, as we mentioned before, we want your thoughts. We want your experiences. We want your thoughts on the album, his and hers. We want your experiences from that time. We want your experiences on from his and hers, or just generally around uh, that era in the 90s. Next time we're going to be um, recording a podcast on Blur's Park Life. 
Tell us your thoughts on that album. Tell us your experiences of that album. What else do we need to tell the people about, Paul? We have, a, we have an official playlist. Um, it's on Spotify. It's called the official RTF Time podcast playlist. It's going to be featuring songs from the uh, albums that we are listening to um, and also songs that we're listening to currently. So collectively, right now, we need to decide what track from his and hers is going on the playlist if we have two of if someone chooses two that's the same that's terribly worded if if more than one person chooses the same track it goes on the playlist we've all got favorite tracks on the album we do. <laughs> i think we're all gonna say them yeah i'm gonna say lip gloss <laughs> i'm gonna say pink glove and i'm gonna say color japanese <laughs> we didn't think that one through okay what collective track are we happy to put on the on the playlist i would happily go with babies Yes. Okay, let's do Babies. Babies it is. Babies is going on there. So the first official track on the official RTF Time podcast playlist is Babies. Charlotte, who are you listening to at the moment? Who? What song would you like adding to the playlist this week? This episode? I would like the new track from Tame Impala called Patience. So yes. Tame Impala, Patience, that'll be added to, added to the playlist. I am going to add... A track by a band called Low Island. The track's called In Person. And I'm going to put that on the playlist. They're great. They sound a bit synthy. Mark, who are you putting on the playlist? What artist, what track? I'm going for The National. You had your soul with you. I absolutely love that track at the minute. It is banging. Okay. And it's upbeat for a national song as well, so I'm happy to put it on there. It's upbeat for a national song. Yeah, it is. Impressive. So it's only four tracks at the moment. Three of ours that we're listening to, Babies by Pulp, but the playlist will grow and you're always welcome to suggest anything that you'd like to add. Doesn't mean we're going to, but you're welcome to suggest them anyway. Fantastic. On that note, we're going to say goodbye for now. Don't forget to listen, subscribe and like us as well. Charlotte, do you want to say goodbye? Goodbye. Paul. Bye! And it's bye from me too. Please deliver us from matching sweatshirts and chicken in the rough. From evening sat on couple row admiring the flock. From Sunday spent parading the Isles of Meadowhall. We don't want to live like this. It's bad It's bad our health. Do something soon or it's curtains. Just as long as they match with the walls and the sofa. Thank you very much, his and hers. Thank you very much for listening. This has been Remember the First Time. Subscribe, listen, follow, like. Yeah.